Welcome to the teaching ministry of Faith Bible Church. We pray as you listen to the following message, you will be encouraged and equipped to passionately pursue Christ. For more information, please visit our website at fbcevansville.com. Just a real quick uh, note. Every, uh, every lesson that I have for this series, I'll be giving a, uh, a caveat, which is about the sources. So that I would like that included in the uh, recording that we upload. And that's what, in, on the handout, you see that. I always try to put, <clears throat> give credit to the people uh, who actually had the content. So, creation and evolution. Uh, this information that I'm presenting to you is compiled by me. Uh, sources and resources are always identified at the bottom of the handouts. If any needs, I'll be happy to cite specific references. But we have to ask the question, why study the topic of creation and evolution? Why would this be important enough enough for us to spend 13 weeks? Why would this be important for you? Why would this be important for your life, for your walk, for your conversations? Got my hearing aids in. We have to recognize God as creator. What else? The integrity of God's word. Okay. It's foundational. It is foundational. <clears throat> we have many reasons why Genesis, the foundational book that you first open the pages of the Bible, why this is critically important. The creation account is set forth in Genesis 1 and touched upon elsewhere in the Bible in numerous places is unique to the origin literature of the world. That reality alone should be the signal of importance by maintaining the integrity of the record. There are many similarities between parts of Genesis and ancient Near Eastern myths, but there are also critically important fundamental differences. Now, there are eight features in particular that distinguish the biblical account of creation and perspective from those other distinctive stories. So distinctive, theologically, is the Bible teaching from that of Israel's neighbors that it's best explained in the light of divine revelation, God's revelation, not the imagination of a religious genius of a biblical author or redactors. First, it is unique in the identity of God. The basic identity of God as revealed in Genesis is distinct from all, over, all other ancient Near East conceptions. The Lord God did not have an origin, nor did he have a female counterpart or consort. If you look at those myths, those are typical of the ancient Near Eastern concepts. There's no type of theogony, no origin of the God. God is present. In the beginning, God created the heaven. It is assumed that he existed. God simply always existed. There's no fertility issue. God is not creating all things through intimacy with another god or goddess. There are no rival gods. Secondly, there are no rival gods. While polytheistic views dominates ancient Near Eastern religions and myths, 
Genesis revealed that God has no rivals. A common explanation for creation among the ancients was that there was an epic battle that raged and the winner took the loser's body and thus created all of creation. Totally distinct from what the Bible says, God spoke and it came into existence. And then number three, creation out of nothing. In Genesis, the creator, by inherent authority as sovereign Lord, spoke creation into a functional, well-ordered existence. There is no eternal pre-created matter, such as believed in the ancient myths. Genesis says that God spoke all things into origin. Now, this is no, creation is not an emanation of his divine person or power, so that God does not inhabit all things, and all things are not a part of God. Again, distinct from ancient Near Eastern religions. The value of humanity, the value of humanity. In Genesis, the account that we have in our scriptures, the creator bestowed special value on humanity. The events of Genesis 1 undergird the affirmation of man's dignity. He is not simply a slave to this false god as a servile instrument, but instead he is raised up to not only preserve the creation, but to have order over creation, to rule over creation, and to also propagate the race. Genesis presents the first humanity as individuals who were the progenitors of the human race. Also, considering how in the eight ways that the Bible is unique and set apart, and it's amazing, by the way, that you think about people who are well-educated, who have never read one page of Holy Writ. How can someone be truly educated and have not read the most popular book of all time? Throughout this lessons, and all of our lessons, by the way, I'm going to ask that you take one item away. So during this lesson, I want to encourage you, take one item away that you can use in conversation with friends, relatives, neighbors, your children, as we discuss the idea that God is the creator, something that will help you as you reach out to others. So again, continuing the uniqueness of the biblical account. The obligation and purpose of humanity. Genesis 1 undergirds the religious and moral responsibility of humanity. The relationship of a creation to the creator. Psalms 100, Romans 3, Romans 9. Man is required to obey his God. Number 6, the beauty and goodness of human relationships. When you contrast the biblical account with the myth accounts, the regulations regarding marriage, the exclusively male-female relationships constituting a valid marital union and the one-man, one-woman arrangement. Those laws, those precedents are grounded in the creation documents. Number seven, the problem of sin and the solution. Number seven, the problem of sin and the solution. 
While ancient Near Eastern myths will address the problem of humanity, the Bible is unique in that the origin and consequences of human sin are detailed. The first glimpse of heaven's method of redemption is also previewed in the Mosaic account, where God provides a covering, where God talks about the one whose heel will be bruised. And number eight, number eight, the Sabbath. In Genesis, the Creator provided the seventh day as a holy day of rest and celebration, which was later memorialized in Israel's Sabbath. It's unique to Israel. And if you read through the prophets of the Old Testament, you'll see that that distinctive, the covenant concerning the Sabbath and Israel and their not keeping the covenant, is thoroughly woven in to part of the judgment in the Assyrian and the Babylonian captivity. Well, let's talk about the next item, foundational. It's important to study and review because creation and to the balance of the Bible. If you gut, if you eviscerate the first chapters of the scriptures, robbing them of their historical accuracy, you set a precedent and tone that allows for a reinterpretation of the text throughout the remainder of sacred canon. Whenever somebody reads something that is beyond their imagination and it seems incredible, it would be easy to dismiss that portion and say, oh, this is folklore. This is a myth. However, the creation account and the immediate events associated with that narrative are substructural. They are foundational to that which remains in divine revelation. And in Psalm 113, verse 3, excuse me, excuse me Psalm 11, verse 3, it says this, If the foundations are destroyed, what will the righteous do? And it's a true principle. Jesus talked about foundations, right? You build your house upon the, you, put, you build it upon the firm, you build it on sand, it's going to crumble. And that's the problem with a view that says Genesis, the creation account in God's word is not reliable. This is a very important point as well. Intellectual honesty in interpretation and understanding. Studying and understanding the creation account in Genesis is critically important if we approach it with intellectual honesty in our interpretation and understanding. <clears throat> and the first thing I'd, we need to address is this. There are universally recognized and acceptable forms of literature. Some would dismiss most if not all of the Bible as being poetry or symbolic when the truths being presented are wrapped up in fantastic and normally unbelievable details that don't appear to be grounded in reality. However, that disingenuous claim is based in absolute ignorance and an unwillingness to be honest and fair with how we read literature. Any form of communication in most languages includes an array of messaging techniques. And there are people who will look at Genesis, look at the first few chapters, and say, oh, this is poetry. And then assume that most of the scriptures are poetry or allegorical. Well, there's a key problem with that. The Bible is a unity of diversity of over 40 inspired authors 
from three continents, penning 66 books in three languages over 2,000 years spread. It expresses its unique message in a rich variety of literary forms. Now you have in your notes on the back page this piece of paper. And it gives you a list of the variety of forms. A variety of forms. And if you look at that passage, you'll see that there are over 40 different literary forms that the scriptures use. Again, you cannot simply say that the scriptures only have one type, poetry or allegory. So why should we, how should we interpret Genesis 1.11? Is it history? Is it methodology or mythology? Is it poetic? Is it allegorical? Is it a parable? Is it a prophetic vision? Is it a mixture of all these kinds of literature or some kind of unique genre? A correct conclusion on genre of literature is foundational to the question of correct interpretation. The Bible, the creation account, Genesis, is reliable. It is reliable. And an honest understanding of the literary forms in the reading not only of modern literature, but the sacred text is the way that we come to that understanding. We can look at the documentary evidence, looking at the documentary evidence, and we can do that by the evidence which is internal to the Pentateuch, to the first five books of Moses. There are many lines of evidence we should consider to determine if Genesis 1 through 11 are the internal evidence within the book of Genesis and how the church also viewed these matters through history. The question then is this, how did the biblical authors, Moses, who wrote Genesis 1, and up through Jesus and the apostles interpret them? In Exodus 20, leaving Genesis behind, there's a recounting of the Sabbath. And that Sabbath account in Genesis, Exodus 20 and verse 8 recounts that in six days you shall labor, do all your work, but the seventh is the Sabbath of the Lord your God. And why? Because in those six days God created heavens and the earth, blessed them, and all that's in them. The passage resists all attempts to add millions of years anywhere in Genesis 1 because it says that God created everything in six days. If you also look at Numbers, chapter 12, verses 6 through 8, the text says, Hear now my words, if there is a prophet among you, I, the Lord, make myself known to him in a vision. I speak to him in a dream. Not so with my servant Moses, the author of the Pentateuch, the author of the first five books. He is faithful in my house. I speak to him face to face, even plainly, and not in dark sayings. There are some people who are consumed with numerology. They're consumed with allegory. They're consumed with symbolism. And so they seek to interpret everything in the scriptures according to that means. And God says here in Numbers chapter 12, 6 through 8, that he spoke to Moses plainly, not in riddles. It was plain language, not in dark sayings. We should not be looking for mysterious, hard-to-understand meanings of what Moses wrote. Rather, we should read Genesis in a, as a straightforward history that it appears to be. 
So, how did the rest of the authors of the Bible interpret Genesis 1 through 11? Well, the evidence external to Genesis 1 through 11 shows that other contributing Old Testament authors believed in an instantaneous fiat creation. Psalm 33:9. He spoke, it was done. He commanded, it stood fast. Psalm 104, 5. He established the earth upon its foundation so will not totter forever. You covered it with the deep as with a garment. Again, Psalm 104, verse 19. He made the moon for the seasons. The sun knows the place of its setting. The other Old Testament authors saw Genesis 1 through 11 as reliable and historical. Not as allegory, not as a myth, not as poetry. Now, in the New Testament, Hebrews 11, verse 3, the writer to the Hebrews says that by faith we understand that the earth was the words, the worlds were prepared by the word of God so that what is seen was not made out of things which were visible. Well, let's go to the Old Testament authors seeing Genesis 1 through 11 as historically accurate. Old Testament authors see Genesis 1 through 11 as historically accurate. Even Dr. Samuel Summer, who is the, um, excuse me, Dr. Samuel Kramer, who is the author of the book History Begins at Summer, and if you if you ever studied Western civilization, you know that Summer or Sumer is an integral part of the uh, roots of a Western civilization study. He said that there are a variety of types and genders which, considering their age, is both startling and revealing including myths, epic tales, hymns, lamentations, proverbs, fables, and essays. Humankind has always been interested in its history. It is unrealistic to think that the ancients rarely wrote historical narrative. This scholar flies in the face of people who simply assume that there was no history written in an early time. There is history that we have unearthed in our archaeologic digs that have been unearthed in the Near Eastern lands that date 3000 BC. So to say that Moses could not have written history is foolishness. <laughs> because you go to a dig, you, you unearth some tablets or some documents, or you reveal an obelisk, and there's history plainly written showing the succession of kings, battles. So there needs to be an honest and accurate history and scholarship. If you look at passages like Psalm 29, verses 10 through 11, and I refer to these passages on your notes, the, king, the Lord said as king at the flood, yes, the Lord sits as king forever. The flood is seen as a historic event. Psalm 136, verse 5. In a poetic form, Psalm 136 recounts many of God's mighty acts in history, beginning with statements about some of his creative acts in Genesis 1. Isaiah 54, 9. For this is like the waters of Noah to me, for I have sworn that the waters of Noah would no longer cover the earth. So this prophet 
who spoke during the time of the captivities, he believed that the flood was real, that Genesis was accurate history. Ezekiel 14, Ezekiel 14, 14 through 20, God refers specifically to Noah, Daniel, and Job, that they were all equally historic and righteous men. New Testament authors as well see Genesis 1 through 11 as reliable. The New Testament has actually many more explicit references to the early chapters of Genesis than does all of the Old Testament. <laughs> you know, and it's, it's amazing because Genesis is written and then the rest of the authors of history, of poetry, of the wisdom literature simply assume that's true. That's true. And so the New Testament authors where the gospel goes out to the Gentiles who know and who have been told these other creation myths, it makes perfect sense that the New Testament authors would undergird, would support the foundational documents when they proclaim the revelation of the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob to the Gentiles which are being brought in. So, few examples, and again, I've written them down, uh, the references on your pages there. Luke 3, 23 through 38. Even the genealogies of Jesus presented in Matthew 1, Luke 3, show that Genesis 1 through 11 is a historical narrative. The genealogies throughout the scripture must all be equally historic, or else we must conclude that Jesus was descended from a myth. John 1.1, 1, 1. in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was, okay, the Word was with God, and the Word was God, right? He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through him, and apart from him, nothing has come into being that has come into being. Again, foundational. Romans 1.20, for since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes... His eternal power, divine nature, have been clearly seen through what has been made. Paul indicated that people have seen the evidence of God's existence and some of that, his attributes since the creation of the world. 1 Corinthians 15, 21 through 22, and 45 through 47, Paul relied heavily on Genesis as being plainly written and historically accurate. Paul built his doctrine of sin and salvation on the fact that Sin and death entered the world through whom? Adam. Adam was a real person. Genesis is historically accurate. 1 Timothy 2, 13 through 14. Paul affirmed that the serpent deceived Eve, not Adam. 1 Corinthians 11, 8 through 9. The apostle took Genesis 1 and 2 literally by affirming that Adam was created first. Eve was made from the body of Adam. 1 Corinthians 10, 1 through 11. It's also been objected that the apostles did not know the difference between truth and myth. But that's also false. In 1 Corinthians 10, verses 1 through 11, Paul refers to a number of passages from the Pentateuch where miracles are described, and he emphasizes in verse 6 and 11 that these things happened. 
And again, even just from a human point of view, never mind the fact that Paul is writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, affirming the writings of Moses. In 2 Timothy 4, 3 through 4, you'll remember this passage. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. Remember that? But according to their own desires, because they have itching ears, they will heap up for themselves teachers, and they will turn away their ears from the truth and be turned aside to what? Fables, myths. It's muthos or muthos. It's the same word that we use today as myths. Paul gives a clear description delineating the creation historic account from all of the ancient Near Eastern myths. First college course that I took was a course entitled Middle Ages. The instructor was a reformed Jew. His purpose in the class, in part, was to erode the confidence of young believers. And the way he did that was showing all of these similarities, I said in air quotes for those who are listening, between the ancient Near Eastern myths and Christianity. Unfortunately, all of these references he made have been disproven and have been continually shown as false from the first writings of that famous book that he referred to. But he was still in the 70s and 80s teaching that to students, seeking to undermine their faith in God's authoritative word. Paul knew that there was a difference. 2 Peter 1.16, we did not follow cleverly devised tales. When we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus, we were eyewitnesses to his majesty. So in contrast to sound truth, sound doctrine, Paul refers to the same Greek word, myths. In a first century world filled with Greek, Roman, and even Jewish myths, the apostles clearly knew the difference between truth and myth. And they constantly affirmed the word of God was true. So, and again, I encourage you, take at least one of these things with you. How about Christ and his use of Genesis? Christ and his use of Genesis. In John 10, Jesus defended his claim to deity by quoting Psalm 82.6 and then asserted that scripture cannot be broken. That is, the Bible is true, faithful, reliable. They can't be contradicted or, or confounded. In Luke 24, Jesus rebuked his disciples for not believing all that the prophets have spoken. The passages I've given you there, and I've given you about 10, uh, 10 to 15 passages where Jesus reaffirms historic accounts. Historical accounts include Adam and Eve as the first married couple, Abel as the first prophet who was martyred, Noah and the flood, the experiences of Lot and his wife, the judgment of Sodom and Gomorrah, Moses and the serpent in the wilderness, wanderings after Egypt, Moses and the manna from heaven, the miracles of Elijah and Jonah, 
in the big fish. Jesus did not allegorize these accounts, but took them as straightforward history. Are you saying Jesus was wrong? <laughs> I'm, I'm not about to make that statement, <laughs> are you? Seems to me that's kind of a dangerous statement to make. Jesus also indicated that the scriptures are essentially, perpic- uh, phew, I'm going to mess up this word. Let me read it. Per- perspicu- they're clear. <laughs> scriptures are clear. Eleven times the gospel writers record Jesus as saying, have you not read? And 30 times he defended his teaching by saying, it is written. He rebuked his listeners for not understanding and believing what the text plainly said. Careful analysis of the verses that I've given to you show that Jesus believed Adam and Eve were in existence essentially at the same time that God created everything else, not millions or billions of years after God made all the other things. Jesus took the creation days as literal 24-hour days. Everything Jesus said shows that we can justifiably call him a young earth creationist. It has been objected that these statements Jesus makes were simple accommodations accommodating the cultural beliefs of his day. So there are some people who say, well, you know, Jesus was just humoring those foolish, ignorant, non-scientific Jews. Well, there's a problem with that. Several problems, indeed. First, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the light. He spoke the truth. No deceitful or misleading words ever came out of his mouth. Jesus was and is the truth. Even a man came up to him and said, Teacher, we know that you are truthful and defer to no one. For you are not partial, but teach the way of God in truth. Second, second problem with saying Jesus was simply accommodating these foolish and ignorant non-scientific people was that Jesus taught with authority on the basis of the word of God, which he called truth, John 17, 17. Not as the scribes and Pharisees, which taught on traditions. Third, Third, Jesus repeatedly and boldly confronted all kinds of wrong thinking. And so, if there was wrong thinking on creation and the origins that were clearly and plainly defined in the scriptures, Jesus would have addressed them. He didn't hold back. Fourth, Jesus emphasized the foundational importance of believing what Moses wrote in a straightforward manner. He emphasized these as literal, historic events, people, places, and times. So we can't say that Jesus was simply accommodating these poor, foolish, unscientific, ignorant peasants. So, we have to ask, we have to ask the question, 
Why is this important? I started out with this question. I'm going to ask it again. Why is this important? There's nothing wrong with your tape. The speaker is waiting in silence for people to answer. <laughs> Except the speaker is anachronistic talking about tape. If it is true, Darren is saying, there is a creation that has accountability with the creator. Excellent. Why else? Why is this all important? Again, I'm asking you to take one thing away. I know that my teaching style is like drinking through a fire hose. I get that. Take one thing away. That's all I'm asking. Just one. Excellent, excellent. Kier's point is that having a hybrid or having a syncretistic understanding is impossible. You can't pick and choose which items you like and form, form your own amalgam. That's again like the clay and the iron feet of that idol, which is unstable and break apart. Why is it important that we as God's people, yes, Kathy, nice and loud, If it's not true, then we have one hope, no hope. If the foundation is unstable, and if we can read and all of these accounts and allegorize them or say that they're simply imagination or poetry, then things like Christ's substitutionary atonement, his righteousness being imputed to our account by God's grace and love, and the power of the resurrection being seen in our lives, if it's not true, all of that is questionable. Excellent. Excellent. Yes. Excellent. Where's your focus? Where's your perception? Is it all about me? Do I have a pre Copernican view of the universe in which the sun, the moon, the stars rotate around me instead of the glorious son of glory. You know, it is about him. It is about him. If we decide that we are the authority and not God in his word, we're in real danger. So it is critically important. First, we should take Genesis 1 through 11 as straightforward, accurate, literal history because Jesus the apostles, as well as all other biblical writers, did so. There's absolutely no basis for taking these chapters as any kind of non-literal, figurative genre of literature. That should be reason enough 
for us to interpret Genesis 1 through 11 in the same literal way. But there are some other important reasons to do so. And that is second, as we said before. Only a literal historic approach to Genesis 1 through 11 gives a proper foundation for the gospel and the hope, the future hope of the gospel. Christ came into the world to solve the problem which started in real space, real time history in Genesis, where two very real people called Adam and Eve and a real serpent had a conversation and actions that resulted in spiritual and physical death. The first Adam is as real as the second Adam. And so while death reigned through the first Adam, the only hope of life comes through Christ, our second Adam, who crushed the serpent's head, who had his heel bruised. Christ came into the world to save sinners. Genesis is foundational to many other historic doctrines, doctrines and practices. Male loving headship. The fact that man is responsible to renew the earth and order the world and is accountable to our creator. So our conclusion is this. Our conclusion is that the Bible is crystal clear. We must believe Genesis 1 through 11 as a literal history because Jesus, the New Testament apostles, and the Old Testament prophets did, and because these opening chapters of Genesis are foundational. A person doesn't have to believe Genesis 1 through 11 is literally true to be saved. We are saved when we repent of our sins and put our faith and trust solely in the person and work of the living and only Savior, Jesus Christ. But if we trust in Christ and disbelieve Genesis 1 through 11, we're being inconsistent and not faithful followers of our Lord. God said in Isaiah 66, verses 1 through 2, as a matter of fact, let's turn there. Genesis 66, 1 through 2. <clears throat> I, I'm sorry, Isaiah 66, my mistake. Sorry, Isaiah 66, 1 through 2. I've had a full weekend. I'm riding on fumes here. <laughs> uh, Isaiah 66, 1 and 2. Thus says the Lord, heaven is my throne and earth is my footstool. Where is the house that you would build me? And where's the place of my rest? For all those things my hand has made, and all these things exist, said the Lord. But on this one will I look, on him who is poor and contrite in spirit and who trembles at my word. So the question is, will we be one who trembles at the words of God rather than believing the fallible and erroneous words of those who develop hypotheses and myths that deny denigrate and destroy God's word. 
Ultimately, this question of the proper interpretation of Genesis 1 through 11 is a question of the authority of God's word and if we as creation will submit to creator. A while ago, there was a conversation among some people in uh, a church and the question was, hey, I just ran into somebody who believed in young earth. And one of the other brothers listened to that and said, hey, uh, I believe that too. And the other brother said, the third brother in the conversation said, you know, we teach that in our church. And I began, you know, my life uh, as a spoon-fed evolutionist, not questioning what I was being taught. And that's prominent. That is the thinking within our culture. That is accepted as fact. And here we have the opportunity as we reflect and communicate God's truth to help people see the truth of God's word and to increase our confidence and hope and trust in his reliable word. And that's our goal. That's our desire. Next week, Lord willing, we will be addressing how well-meaning Christian people have come up with alternative views of the timing of the early parts of Genesis. We'll be looking at that and evaluating them based on their own merit. So, final question. What are you taking away from today? What are you going to bring up in conversation that might help you present the gospel or to support the integrity of God's word in your conversation with friends, family, coworkers? How have you been encouraged in your confidence in God's word by what we looked at today? Good, yep. The, uh, the reality that there are historic accounts and narratives from 3000 BC and earlier. And uh, to say that there weren't, it's not consistent with modern archeologic sites. Good, what else? Jesus is a young earther. Jesus is a young earther. <laughs> okay, good. The New Testament authors, Jesus himself believed that those historic accounts, those events, those people were real. It's going to bolster our faith and confidence. And it's a question we can ask. Well, you know, these people, these other people in the scriptures confirmed. Well, again, if anybody had any questions, aside from that, I'm happy to answer them. Um, and again, as I said in the beginning, uh, all the sources uh, for uh, this class are listed on uh, your outline. If you'd like to know exactly where some quotes come from, I'm happy to provide that for you. As a serial plagiarist, I cannot take, I cannot take uh, uh, all the glory. I'll give that to somebody else. You really don't want to hear my thoughts. All right, let's pray. Father, we thank you and praise you for this time. We thank you for the fact that we do accept by faith that you, by the power of your word, caused all these things to exist. And Lord Jesus, 
we confess by faith that in you all things subsist, all things hold together. And we readily admit that we don't fully understand these things, but we trust in you. And we thank you for the trustworthiness, the reliability, the historic accuracy of your word, and how even outside sources will confirm that. Help us, O oh Lord, to be a light to our community. Help us to have a faith that is strengthened, that we would indeed submit and tremble at your word, that Christ would be exalted, that our confidence in him would be so great that we would freely extend that gift of life to others. And we praise you for this time in your son's name, Father. Amen.